Welcome to the Art Song Podcast. My name is Daniela Theresia and I'm a mezzo-soprano, and I'm joined by my friend and pianist Suzanne Yeo for an episode of our Eternal Feminine series. This set of podcasts was inspired by my concert series called The Eternal Feminine, which expresses the feminine perspective through women's words and music. In the past, we've explored themes like love, relationships, motherhood, loss, and one's purpose in life. We've done this by performing pieces either based on female characters or pieces with a female composer or poet. For the Eternal Feminine podcast series, we've decided to focus on female composers and poets in order to bring these women into a modern context. Some of these women are not very well known, and we wanted to recognize them for their works, as well as bringing the art song genre to a larger audience. Today we're going to be discussing the piece Berceuse d'Amorique by Poltovsky, which has been featured on every Eternal Feminine concert so far. You don't often see Poltovsky on programs generally, so I, I was just thinking perhaps you could fill our listeners in a bit on how you first came across her. Sure. Um, so I first came across Poldovsky in 2017 uh, when I was researching composers for my very first Eternal Feminine concert. And Poldovsky is kind of an elusive figure. You know, there's some people that like to keep scrupulous accounts of every action, um, but Poldovsky seems to prefer enjoying life more than keeping track of it for future reference. And she also died quite suddenly and relatively young, so she never wrote any memoirs. There's a lot of speculation and anecdotal information about her. However, um, Suzanne was able to find a wonderful dissertation about Poldovsky by Myra Brand, and this provided us with excellent first-hand resources from Poldovsky's contemporaries. But first things first, Poldovsky is the pseudonym for Regine Wieniawski. She was a pianist and composer who was born in Belgium in 1879, and she died in England in 1932. Regine came from a musical family. Um, her father was the famous violinist and composer Henrik Wieniawski, and her mother was related to the famous Irish pianist George Alexander Osborne. Henrik Wieniawski actually died um, while on a concert tour when Regine was barely a year old, so and it kind of seems ironic that from such a strong musical legacy, she was the only one of his children who became a musician. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, as it turned out, she was actually kind of a prodigy in her own right as well, because she was performing and publishing her own music even when she was just a teenager. Um, at the time, she was writing under the name Irene Vienyavska. But sometime after her father's death, Regine moved to England with her mother and the rest of her family, um, as her, her mother was English. And it seems that she made a name for herself in the musical circles because one of her friends was actually Nellie Melba, um, the great Australian soprano. Right. And, and of course, it was Nellie Melba who introduced her to a future husband who was an English baronet named Sir Aubrey Dean Paul, which of course meant that after her marriage, Regine Wieniawski became Lady Dean Paul. 
So, but after she got married and actually she had three children, she still continued her musical pursuits. In fact, her husband was also musical and sometimes they would even concertize together um, with him singing and she was playing the piano. Both of them would use pseudonyms when performing. He used the name Edward Ramsey and Regine created the name Poldovsky. Some commentators think that she may have come up with Poldovsky as a combination of her husband's name, Paul, and the Polish ending Nowski, like a maiden name, Bieniawski. Um, we, we don't really know for sure how she picked the name, uh, and, and we don't know for sure why she was using a pseudonym, but, but it is possible that she wanted to distinguish herself from her husband, but also not trade on her famous father's name, while still keeping some kind of coded connection to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so, because, you know, not only was her father famous worldwide, but her uncle was also a pianist and composer. And so the name Vyanyavsky would have been well known. Well, she certainly was successful in distinguishing herself from the family legacy. Yeah, for sure. And not only was she well known, but I, it's apparent that she was well liked by musicians and critics. As I was reading Myra Brand's dissertation, um, it, it includes a lot of reviews and tributes to Polovsky. And so a lot of her friends and colleagues write about this zest for life that she had and that she was a joy to be around. Um, she loved being with her friends, even in her final days when she was suddenly taken ill. You know, the, the thing is, um, despite all the socializing, she, she always found time to study, compose and perform. Uh, you know, she, she, she often performed her own pieces in concerts, uh, sometimes even accompanying herself at the piano while singing, uh, though she did not by any means consider herself a singer, which also was remarked on by some critics. <laughs> um, and, and she also went off to Paris to study at some point. And the French influence is evident in quite a bit of her work, mm-hmm. not just in her musical style, but also in the choice of song text. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she had quite a reputation at the time, actually, for, for being very sensitive in the settings of poems. And this was true, especially when it came to French poetry, especially of Verlaine, to whom she seems to have felt a certain affinity. Mm-hmm. The text for our piece today isn't by Verlaine. The text of Berceuse d'Amorique is by Anatole Braz, who was a celebrated Breton author and folklorist. So the title means Cradle Song of Armorica, and Armorica means place by the sea, and it's an old name that kind of refers to modern-day Brittany. But why don't we go ahead and talk about Poldovsky's setting? Yes. So I, I just want to begin by saying that Although this is supposedly a cradle song, it is by no means a conventional lullaby. And, and, and you can sense this, you know, even from the very opening of the piece. Most lullabies have a kind of rocking motion in the accompaniment because, you know, it, it's like rocking a baby in your arms or in a cradle. And of course, if you listen to the famous lullaby by Brahms, that's, that's a classic example of this sort of rocking motion. Mm-hmm. And I think another lullaby that does this well is the Garten Mother's Lullaby, uh, which is an old Irish lullaby that we recorded for the Eternal Feminine in 2018. So I'd actually like to play you an excerpt from that piece. And if you listen for the opening chords in the piano especially, I think you'll hear that sort of rocking motion we're talking about. And in contrast, Berceuse d'Amorique begins like this. 
So, you know, in, in the beginning, you get these glassy sounding high octaves. It's almost like the tolling of distant bells. And then you get these parallel sequences that sound strangely dissonant, even though the harmony isn't in itself all that weird. It's just the juxtaposition of the keys that makes it sound dissonant. And then you have the narrator um, who starts by saying, sleep, little Charles, in your post bed, which, you know, so far, nothing suspicious in the text. This is pretty default for lullabies. Um, but then it gets a bit strange. Um, you have the singer saying, uh, well, you have the singer asking God to take pity on the sailors out at sea. And then she calls on an unnamed old woman to sing her song as the moon rises and the sea begins to awaken. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, it, 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 it doesn't feel very comforting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and I guess that's what's so striking about this piece. You know, you're expecting a lovely lullaby, but in the first few lines of the song, it's really unsettling and strange. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like there's kind of a hint of danger or even death in the air. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and then, you know, in the next verse, you get something even more ominous. You've got the piano part rumbling menacingly in the lower register, um, you know, like a sound in the distance mm -hmm. as it's marked. If the first verse was ambiguous, this one is much less so. Speaking of the land of the cold, where the fjords sing their lullaby to lull the dead. And in the second verse, the voice part is even marked um, without expression, which maybe suggests this sort of numbness of grief or um, maybe the inexorability of fate. Um, but I, I think it's worth just listening to a bit of just the piano part for the second verse that you can hear already the tone is shifting towards something kind of menacing. Yes, we're definitely not in typical lullaby <laughs> land <here>. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, then you get the third verse. And the child is told to sleep in his soft bed. And I quote, because you are going where everyone goes. In other words, the land of the cold that we just heard about mm -hmm. in the second mm -hmm. verse. Um, and, and then by the time we get to the fourth verse, Whatever emotion was there, um, perhaps, you know, in that moment of recognition that the child is going where everyone goes, um, that emotion is now completely drained. Mm -hmm. the, the voice part is marked de plus en plus effacé or more and more erased, too broken even to cry out in despair, perhaps. Uh, as we hear that the child's eyes are already the color of the waves, perhaps in a symbolic merging of the sea. And then you get this brief piano postlude that brings back a reminiscence of the third verse only to end in the high stark octaves of the opening before resolving to the tonic in the other direction, another bare octave, mm -hmm. but this time all the way down in the bass, perhaps a nod to the reality uh, and, and finality of burial. Yeah. So really, you know, this piece feels more like a requiem than a lullaby. Indeed. And, and it makes a lot more sense 
when one realizes that the song was inspired by the death of Brodowski's eldest son, when he was just true. Right. It, it's also interesting when you look at the original poem by Le Barras, which is eight verses long, while Podovsky's piece is just four verses. Mm -hmm. Of course, I mean, a likely practical reason for milling half of the poem could simply be that at eight verses, it would be way too long. But the verses that Podovsky omitted do make a lot more sense in light of her own context. Yeah, and I think the omitted text um, addresses a lot of things that are very specific to Brittany, um, as well as making it clear that in the poem, the mother is addressing a child who's still alive. Uh, for example, she says, you know, she already lost her husband to the sea and she didn't cry when he died and she won't cry when her when her child dies. And she talks to him as if he's going to become part of the sea, like the foam on the waves. And then the poem ends with this strange text, um, because it is for the waves that we give birth, all seafarers die who were born Breton. So it's clear that in the poem, the mother has kind of numbed herself against the inevitable death at sea of her child when he grows up, um, but that he's still alive at this point. And by omitting those verses, Poldowski removes the subtext, probably because she was addressing her own situation and her own loss. Right. And, and of course, as we said, that's very much reflected in the music as well. The piece has this sort of requiem mm -hmm. feel to it with the tolling bells, the melancholy minor key. And, and, and so the piece becomes more of a journey of realization as she comes to terms with the death of her son and her grief. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe, you know, this interpretation is colored by the fact that we know that she wrote Bexer's D'Arc-Morique as well as two other pieces specifically um, in reference to her son's death mm -hmm. in real life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, this isn't, really a normal sort of lullaby in any case. I mean, this this isn't the sort of thing you sing to soothe a child to sleep. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, not if you want them to sleep well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I guess there's one other thing we haven't talked about, and that's the old woman in the song. You know, um, in every verse, there's this refrain, and it says, sing, old woman, sing your song. Now, I always interpreted the old woman as the sea itself, um, that she was kind of claiming and rocking the dead to sleep in the waves. But but I think that you, Suzanne, have a different interpretation, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I see her as a separate entity to the sea, um, as a sort of folkloric figure, which given Le Bras background would also make sense. Um, I mean, there is something that feels uncanny about her, but, but I, I, I do think she's not the sea. I, I, I think I see her more as somebody in the community who is, you know, who has been around a really long time mm -hmm. and, and has seen this happen again and again. And, and, and you know, she's called upon to sing the song, um, whether for the baby in the poem or for the good sailors out there, because this is what she does. It's it's some kind of ritual farewell that mm -hmm. she's done, you know, like a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think we, um, of course, agree that, that um, you know, whatever the meaning of the old woman, the, the song is really about death. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's fatalistically predicted in advance, as in the original poem, or acknowledged and moaned, uh, as Podovsky's version suggests. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, what makes this even more poignant is that this piece 
is actually by a mother writing about maternal grief, mm-hmm. which she herself experienced firsthand exactly and you know that's that's what attracted me to this piece in the first place for the eternal feminine um and it's also why we've decided to to discuss this piece for this podcast you know rather than maybe a more famous piece that Poldovsky wrote like lyric skis for example in and of itself it, it's also quite beautiful it's got this sort of unearthly quality to it mm-hmm. so i think without any further ado We'd like to play you a recording of the piece, which Suzanne and I performed live at the Heliconian Hall in Toronto in 2018. Please enjoy Berceuse d'Amorique by Poldovsky. I do really love this piece, and I hope that you enjoyed it as well. 
No matter how you interpret it, um, it's clear that Poldovsky's music speaks to the heart, and I think that this piece in particular is a tribute to her sensitivity and compositional talent. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I also wanted to say that Poldovsky has been rediscovered in recent years, so, so there have been a number of recordings made of her work. Anyway, we hope that this will inspire you to explore some of her other work. You can also find more about Poldovsky by visiting our website, artsong-podcast.com, where you'll find a dedicated page to her under Episodes. And that wraps up this episode of the Eternal Feminine series here on the Art Song Podcast. I'm Daniela Theresia, and I've been speaking with Suzanne Yeo about Regine Vienyavsky, the composer also known as Poldovsky. So thank you to you, Suzanne. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. We hope that you'll keep tuning in to the Art Song podcast this summer as we continue to highlight more women composers and poets. If you enjoyed this, please remember to subscribe and to share the Art Song podcast with others. So-